Today, I'd like to talk about the reason why God is probably angry at you, and that is love. And this message I've really enjoyed putting together. So, love. It's powerful. You may be familiar with a passage from Song of Solomon, chapter 8. It says, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal in your, on your arm. For love is as strong as death. Its ardor unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give... Sorry. If, if one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. Love is powerful. The Bible teaches this. And this morning, just to keep things really, really simple, because the Bible actually has too much to say about love to co cover in one message in one morning. You'd be very angry at me if I went through all of the verses in the Bible that talk about love. Because we don't have that culture anymore. You know, in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, the Bible teacher stood and was speaking for three hours, and then six hours, and everybody, they just stood there. They were standing and the speaker was sitting six hours. We no longer live in that kind of a day. Amen? <laughs> but to keep things simple, I would like to just focus on uh, three kinds of love. And before we get to the end of the message, it will be even simpler than just three. And the three are bhakti, and you're going to have to forgive me, because every time I say that to somebody, they say, what? So I know there's something wrong with my pronunciation, but B-H-A-K-T-I, bhakti, which is often translated as devotion, but has something to do with devotion to God. And then beloved, you know, three Bs, so bhakti, beloved, and beauty. I'm also going to focus things a little bit more than that, and I'm going to talk primarily about music. So, music from the Bible, and what the Bible has to say about love, and we're going to take a look at some other things as well, to talk about love. You know, all of human literature is just littered with discussion about love. In fact, it's interesting, we talk about devotion, you know, bhakti. Um, the oldest known musical notation. We don't know what the pitches sounded like, but we have the lyrics of a song that goes back, back to about 3,400 years ago. And it is a Hurrian, Amorite, Canaanite, Ugaritic song that is a hymn to the goddess Nikal. I don't know who the goddess Nikal is, but that's what the hymn was written to. The oldest written form of a song that we have pretty 
well dated that is written is about devotion to a god. You know, in the Gita, which is this story, you know, it is a Gita. It's a song. And in that, there's a discussion about devotion to God and how human beings are supposed to show this kind of devotion to Him. Again, music. It's interesting. Have you heard of Pythagoras? Yeah, I get these kind of confused looks every time I ask that question. You've all heard of Pythagoras because you've heard of the Pythagorean theorem, right? A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Okay, yeah. So you've heard of Pythagoras. You know, he, he de- obviously he was into math. Um, he developed this whole philosophical and religious system uh, based on music in which somehow he developed this understanding that uh, this is 2,600 years ago. How he did this, I have no idea. The guy must have been a super genius. He figured out that the pitch C which I have no, I, I don't have perfect pitch, so I can't tell you what the pitch is, but somewhere around uh, that, that bottom C on the piano, that pitch vibrates 64 times a second. And he found the pitch above that vibrates 128 times per second. I hope some of you are, I'm sure, calculating quickly. So 64 times 2, you get 128. So... You get C again. Each one of those pitches is twice as fast as the previous one in its vibrations. Now, how did he figure out? He didn't have an oscilloscope. How did he figure out the number of cycles per second to get a particular pitch? I have no idea. Nobody actually knows. But he thought, wow a one-to-two ratio, and you get the most consonant relationship of pitches that's possible. In fact, if I play two... Can I play this? Is it possible for me to play on this keyboard? I hope I'm not disrupting. Everything's turned on. That's so nice. Okay, so... Sorry. Thanks. The expert, thank you. I, you know, I can't turn a mic on. I can't turn a keyboard on. I, I, okay, after seeing what you did to turn it on, I'm, I don't feel so bad. Okay, so that's, that's the pitch that's 64. Yeah, no problem. Ah, thanks. That's the pitch that is 64 times a second. That's the pitch that is 128. Thanks. And I play them together. Can you tell I'm playing two notes at the same time? It sounds almost like I'm only playing one note, right? It sounds almost like one pitch. It is so consonant that you can hardly tell that there's a distinction between pitches. I might as well stay here for a second. So... You get that. He figured out that that is a one-to-two ratio, the simplest mathematical relationship. If you're going to have a distinction, it's the simplest mathematical relationship one-to-two. He also figured out that from here to here, a perfect fifth, is a one-to-three ratio. 
Did you get that? Okay, so the, the, the next step where you have a relationship between pitches, sorry, I'll be finished with the music lesson in just a second, okay? All right, I'm almost done. The next step where you have a, that's a one to three ratio relationship, he thought, well, what if we develop a whole scale system based on the perfect fifth, which is the only one where you get a distinction. I mean, if I play amazing grace, how sweet the sound, it's not very interesting. If all you have is one note, that's very consonant, but it's not very interesting. If you have the perfect fifth, you have something interesting happening. But it's still not all that interesting. But he went from the bottom pitch. So you have up there, perfect fifth above that is this. It's a G. Perfect fifth above that is D. Perfect fifth above that, fifth is, a, is an A. Above that is an E. Does anybody know what's next after E? Perfect fifth? All you musicians? Oh, come on. Perfect fifth above E. B, thank you. Above B is F sharp. Now we're in the black notes. Perfect fifth above F sharp, C sharp. Perfect fifth above C sharp. Yeah, G sharp. Perfect fifth above G sharp is D sharp, or you can call it E flat if it makes you feel better. And a perfect fifth above E flat is B flat, and that brings us back to F. And a perfect fifth above F is C. Those are all the 12 tones of the Western classical 12-tone system. They're all perfect fifths above each other. And what he theorized was that if you, if you could get in touch with these mathematical relationships of sound and music, that you could get in touch with the music of the spheres. His term, not mine. And if we could get in touch with this mathematical and musical thing that's happening in the universe, that we would all have peace and learn how to get along with each other. The result would be a loving community. His philosophy didn't last very long. But, again, a connection. Somehow, if we can get in touch with what God has done in his creation... We'll have better relationships with him and with each other. There's something in there that sounds like bhakti again. Sorry, it's, my daughter gave me this, and it's new, and I'm learning how, and somehow the keyboard has come up. I don't know how to get rid of it. <laughs> and um, so there are my notes, and they have to be this big for me to see it without glasses. Anyway. I, I think that I have some kind of technological curse. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> yes, but no. <laughs> okay, you know what's interesting is all this teaching, all the literature and the art that is focused on bhakti, on love and devotion to God, you know, that's great. It's wonderful. And it's very different from the Bible. The Bible doesn't actually focus on this. What the Bible focuses on is God's, listen to me and don't get angry at me for using this term, God's bhakti towards us. God is fully devoted to us. He loves us. That's the beginning of everything. 
So we say, oh, I love God. Are you impressed with yourself? Congratulations. Good. Good. <laughs> Why do we love him? Because he first loved us. He loved us so much he gave his only begotten son so that we could have life, eternal life. It's very, very different. It's his devotion to us that is the basis of our salvation. It is not our devotion to him. It's his love for us that is the basis of our salvation and our health and our wisdom and the grace that we live in. It's not our devotion and love and grace towards him. It's not our work that gets us to heaven. It's his work. David, quite possibly as a young boy. Again, I'm focusing a little bit on music. Probably he was a young kid when he wrote this. He may have been shepherding his father's flocks long before he became a king. And he wrote these words. Adonai roi loetzar. And you may not know Hebrew, and you may not know those words, but you still know those words, even if you don't. It's the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack anything. You go through that song, and I'll tell you, that song is a song about God's love for us. I think that's one of the reasons it's so popular. It doesn't even mention love. But the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, Leonard Bernstein, a uh, composer with a Jewish heritage in the 20th century, imagined what it might have sounded like when uh, David was out on the hills singing his song. And he, th he composed a melody for it. Adonai I don't know if it sounded like that, but it's a nice imagination of what it may have sounded like for David to sing that song. When God introduced himself to Moses, how does he introduce himself? Over a thousand years before David. Sorry, I'm saying introduce. I'm probably using the wrong word. Moses wanted to see God's glory. He's asking for a favor. And God says, okay, sure. You can't see my face. It'll kill you. <laughs> I'm just too much beauty. We're not designed for it. But I'll let my glory pass before you, and I'll tell you my name. Now, it's really interesting when the Lord calls down his name. It's not just a name. It's a description of himself. So it says in Exodus chapter 34, he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands. Please notice that in the center of his description of himself. Abounding in love. What is that? It's, you know, love overflowing. Abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands. You know, <laughs> I've talked about this here before. In today's society, you know, I talk to young people. And I'll talk to a young person who says, oh, I'm so in love with this girl. And the next week, 
He hates that girl, but he's in love with another girl. And um, it seems like we're forgetting what it's like to have a long-term love. But God's love is one that he maintains. He maintains his love. And the Bible teaches his love is eternal. So I'd like to sing a song with you. I want you to sing this song with me. This is your part. His love endures forever. Can you do that? His love endures forever. Nice. You learn fast. Now that's your part. We're going to go through Psalm 136. We don't know who wrote it. Might have been David, maybe, but he signed most of his songs. May have been Asaph, we don't know. But somebody about a thousand years ago wrote about God's love. Now, you got your part? Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him alone who does great wonders. Who by his understanding made the heavens. Who spread out the earth upon the waters. Who made the great lights. The sun to govern the day. The moon and stars to govern the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. And brought Israel out of from among them. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder. And brought forth Israel through the midst of it. But swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. You tired of it yet or are you hypnotized? <laughs> you getting the idea? Now the guy who wrote this understood the nature of God's love. And he wanted to emphasize that so that after you sing this song you begin to get the picture. We as human beings are a little slow. Sometimes we have to hear a message over and over and over and over and over and over to get it the first time. To him who led his people through the wilderness. To him who struck down great kings. And killed mighty kings. Sihon king of the Amorites. And Og, king of Bashan. And gave their land as an inheritance. An inheritance to his servant Israel. He remembered us in our lower state. And freed us from our enemies. He gives food to every creature. Give thanks to the God of heaven. 
His love endures forever. How long does his love endure? Yeah, you did that really well. God loves us unstoppably, incomparably, unendingly, impossibly. He loves us. He says to his people, one of my favorite little passages, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. So, there was a popular phrase to say in the 1970s, I found Jesus. (laughs) We get it backwards. Yeah, he found me when I wasn't even looking for him. So, most people around the world recognize the importance of devotion to loving God. But most people, including, I think, many people in the church, miss the point that God loves us. He is devoted to us. When I think of bhakti in the Bible, I don't think so much about our devotion to him, but instead of him being completely devoted to us. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Does anybody have it memorized? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. He that does not love does not know God, for God is love. Some of you might have that memorized because of the old Sunday school song that we, Beloved, let us love one another. Okay, fine, let's sing it. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. Beloved, let us love one another, First John 4, 7 and 8. Okay, we're identifying ourselves as being a little bit older, I think. I think most of the younger people here did not sing that with us. That verse goes on, so you've got 7 and 8. Verse 10 says this. Herein is the love of God manifested. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and gave His Son to be the propitiation. I just love that word, King James. What does it mean? The propitiation for our sins. So propitiation. The atoning sacrifice, the sacrifice that eliminates, washes out our sins. The love of God is manifested in that. Paul puts it this way in Romans. He said, people don't really want to die for somebody else. But for a good man, you might dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for whom? Ah, nice. The ungodly. Glad you all said us. Not for the good people, the beautiful people, the powerful people, the important people, the famous people. He died for the ungodly. The outcast. The worst of us. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. 
He's not waiting for us to do the right thing so that he can love us. I think we get the wrong image of who God is. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. It's actually the opposite of what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach you, be righteous and then God will love you. No. It teaches God loves you. Doesn't that motivate you to be righteous? Ah, yeah. You get the distinction. So different. So, love. We talk about love. Probably the most popular talk about love is the love, you know, romantic love, right? Love between two people. In fact, I'm talking about the oldest songs, right? We've got the Hurrian song. There's a song about Bhakti. The oldest song that is written that we know what the pitches sounded like, where the music notation and the notation of the lyrics are together, and we know what the sound is supposed to be, is the Sekulos Epitaph. Yeah, I told you the music lesson was finished, but maybe not. And let's see if I can read this. This is what it sounded like. O sonses fainu Meiden holasulupu Prosoliganesti tazen Telosakrana sapaiten Did you like that? <laughs> Let me tell you the translation. That's in Greek. While you live, shine. Eliminate grief. Life is short. And time demands an end. You know the word there for end is the same word that Jesus used on the cross when he said, it is finished. Same Greek word that is there in the New Testament. That is a song that he wrote in honor of his recently departed wife. It may not sound like it, but it's, a, but it's a love song. He's reflecting on the way that his wife shone, shined. Such poetry is among the most beautiful of human creations. As we might expect, the Bible has many examples of love songs to God, but it also has love songs that we would think of as love songs, you know, human love songs. Let's come back to the Song of Songs where we began. Uh, if you want to turn there, you don't have to. Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs of Solomon, chapter 8, says this, I am my beloved's, and he is mine. His banner over me is love. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. This is obviously a love song where a woman is singing to her soon-to-be husband. It's a very beautiful and passionate love song, and it's in the Bible. In the Proverbs, again Solomon, encourages his son to hear the siren call of wisdom. Wisdom cries out in the streets and says, Come to me, those who love me, I will love. I will bless. And if you think about the idea of wisdom being personified, 
If you think of wisdom personified, who might you think of? I heard some people saying Jesus. Okay. I told you about the Sunday school teacher. I'm sure I've told you about this before because I, I mentioned it. But please, if you know the punchline, don't blurt it out. But there was a little boy in a Sunday school class, and the Sunday school teacher was asking, okay, what is the creature that stores nuts for the winter, will sometimes keep them in their jowls, and then lives up in the trees, and is fuzzy, has a long tail? Little boy raised his hand in the back, and the Sunday school teacher called on him, and he said, it sounds like a squirrel, but I know the answer has to be Jesus. You know, it's, it's Sunday school. The answer has to be Jesus. Um, yes, wisdom. If you think of the personification of wisdom, it's not a squirrel. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus calls out to us, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Learn from me. I'll give you rest to your souls. A few weeks ago, Pastor Victor was talking about God's love and quoted from Ephesians chapter 5. And um, I'd like to take a look at that passage again, uh, speaking to husbands. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. Listen, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, when we read that, you know, people argue about what one flesh means. Maybe it means psychologically, uh, financially to become one, emotionally in some ways. Um, uh, some scholars talk about the sexual union as being the two becoming one. What is Paul talking about? Marriage. Yes? But he says this is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. Did you all catch that? Like a man, you know, the Bible encourages, the Proverbs also say, be absolutely infatuated with the wife of your youth. Now, I'm no longer a youth. Actually, you know, they say that the 40s is the old age of youth, and 50s is the youth of old age. Anyway, I'm, not, I'm, I'm no longer a youth. But the, uh, the idea is this. When you're no longer a youth, be absolutely infatuated with your wife. I think that's what's being said. The idea is the Bible actually teaches us to continue to be in love with each other, which is something you have to work at. Amen? Yeah. 
the chemical thing that happens, you know, people fall in love. Hopefully they don't fall too much and hurt themselves. But staying in love, that doesn't happen to you. That's something you have to choose and work towards. So, God loves us like a husband that is fully in love with his wife, caring for, nurturing her, building her up. That's the kind of love he has towards us. It's a beautiful image. Beautiful image. So God's love in, invites us to a richer human love. And human love at its best is a reflection of the beauty that makes us most human. That which drives us to the divine. God calls us to experience his love, to experience human love. Now, very, very quickly, before I go on, I'm at the last of my three points, okay? I'm finishing up point two. So I'm on schedule. There is such a thing as love that is not godly love. Not all loves are God's love. I was once talking with an elderly man when I was more youthful. And um, he said, uh, love is God. And he was in his 80s. I was like 30. I didn't think I was the person who should be correcting him. But, you know, the Bible says God is love, but that doesn't mean love is God. It, that's, that's not logical. Okay? It's like saying the sun is light. Therefore, light is the sun. Oh, look, the sun. It isn't logical. There's love described in the Bible. So I ask you, what is God's love? What is the Greek word for God's love? Tell me. Yeah, everybody knows that, right? Okay. You know, in John chapter 1, the Bible teaches men loved darkness more than the light because their deeds were evil. You know the word there used for loving darkness? Agape. Agape is not God's love. Agape is absolute wholehearted devotion. You can be absolutely wholeheartedly devoted to something bad. Absolutely wholeheartedly devoted to your own success. Fame. Power. Influence. Wanting everybody to love you. And if they don't, they're your enemy. That's not good. That's not godly love at all. So, God is absolutely wholeheartedly devoted to us. And when we have that same kind of positive desire for the best for the other person, for the beloved, then we're beginning to reflect his love. Can I say it again? When we consistently, year after year, Decade after decade. Continue to care and be concerned about what is best for the beloved. Then we're beginning to reflect God's love. That is godly love. But God invites us to this kind of human love. And I believe to experience a kind of love that we may not talk about much. Just in general. I mean in general, not just in the church. We just don't talk about this kind of love much. There's a love for beauty. 
a love for beauty. I mean this in a very positive way. C.S. Lewis argued that love of beauty was the primary quality of virtue that good education should inculcate. If you haven't read C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man, just a strange title, and so you may not have heard of it. You've heard of Mere Christianity and maybe the Chronicles of Narnia, if you know of C.S. Lewis, maybe a few other books. But The Abolition of Man is a book that he wrote about education. He was a teacher. He was a professor. He spent some time professoring in Oxford and some time professoring in Cambridge. He said this, St. Augustine defines virtue as ordo amoris, the ordinate condition of the affections in which every object is accorded that kind of degree of love which is appropriate to it. Aristotle says that the aim of education is to make the pupil like and dislike what he ought. When the age of reflective thought comes, the pupil has been thus trained in ordinate affections and just sentiments, will easily find the first principles of ethics. But to the corrupt man, they will never be visible at all, and he can make no progress in that science. C.S. Lewis argues that men who are disconnected from their emotions and virtues are men without chests. He goes on to quote traditions like the, I, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it, but Rata in Hindu, which is the way, and the Tao in Chinese, which also means, do you know? The way. Interesting. Hindu thought, Chinese philosophical thought, both talk about the way. The Bible also talks about the way. Jesus himself said what? I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through, except through me. That all over the world, people view the purpose of education as alignment with the way, the order of things, and through this to appreciate all that is truly beautiful. And I'd like to suggest to you there's another kind of beauty, and I'm finishing with this. And that is a beauty of a well-lived life. The beauty of a well-lived life. So many things we focus on these days. Good career, good possessions, good family. If you're looking for a spouse for your child, <laughs> Why don't you look for good character? I don't mean a character, somebody who's funny or silly, but a person of good character. Francis of Assisi, a story about a well-lived life. Francis of Assisi was born in a wealthy family. And there's a story. I don't know if you ever heard this story. He was... He was working for his dad, and he had the responsibility of going, and he would collect um, payment for his father's clothing business. So he would sell clothing, and yes, this is 800 years ago. He would sell clothing and then take the money, and on his way back to his dad's place, he'd stop by a church and see it was kind of dilapidated and run down, so he would donate to the church the money that he had collected for his dad's business. And this happened over and over. So finally, his dad got frustrated with it and took his son to court. Yes, St. Francis was taken to court. 
And in the court case, the father is accusing him and saying, you know, everything you have belongs to me. Even the clothes you're wearing belong to me. And he said, well, actually, I belong to God. And if these clothes belong to you, cool. He didn't say cool. But anyway, he took off, he, he took off his clothes and walked out of the court. And according to the story, he actually walked out naked, out of the court and into the kingdom of God. And he never looked back. He left the wealth, the status, all those things that we think of <laughs> that you might want for a spouse for your child. And he pursued a well-lived life. In fact, it's interesting. He actually wanted to die for Christ. He went to the Middle East because he thought if he could go and witness to Muslims, they'd probably kill him. And that's what he wanted. The problem is he went to minister to a sheikh and tell him the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the sheikh just loved the guy. And so he gave Francis gifts and sent him back to Europe. <laughs> Francis wrote in his journal, he was kind of disappointed. That wasn't exactly what he wanted. But he wrote something I'm sure many of you actually know. This poem that's a prayer. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace, where there's hatred. Let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is sadness, joy. Where there is darkness, light. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Speaking of laying your life down for love, a beautifully lived life. Jesus. Of course, I'm coming to Jesus. Finally, at the end of the message, I have to talk about Jesus. The beginning and in the end of love, the Alpha and the Omega of love, Jesus Christ our Lord. Even on the cross, I told you I'm focusing on songs, right? You know, even on the cross, he made seven statements, right? And uh, sometimes around Easter, we'll talk about the seven last words of Jesus on the cross. You know, three of those he was quoting from the Psalms. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Psalm 36. And probably when he said, I thirst, John at least implies that he was quoting from the Psalms. Three times out of the seven proclamations that Jesus makes from the cross, three times he was singing from the cross. Difficult to imagine. Even while he's suffering, he's speaking in song. I think Jesus was a musician. I'm biased. I think he was a tenor. I know there are some here who think he was a baritone. And ladies, if they could have their way, would think he was a soprano. We must heed the words of the Apostle Paul. To lay aside all filth and speaking to one another in forms of ancient art and inspired by the Spirit, 
in new music we create, we should build each other up in the faith. We need the inspiration of God. We need literally the inspiration, the breathing in of his spirit so that we can learn to love the way that he loves, to become more humane, and as creatures made in the image of God, more fully human, reflecting his goodness, his glory, his grace, his justice, his devotion, and his love. We find his love endlessly inspiring. I love the hymn. By the way, I really enjoyed the worship this morning. Can I just say that? It's so nice. And so connected with the message this morning. I don't know if you noticed. A hundred years ago, Frederick Lehman wrote these words. And I'll quote one verse from the hymn, and then the third verse was written by somebody else. He said, The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the farthest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. And then you get to the third verse, and it was written a thousand years ago, and uh, then translated into English, and nobody knows who translated it. It was actually scrawled on the inside of an insane asylum. So somebody was probably locked away because it was inconvenient, probably not because of insanity. And he did this wonderful translation in prose. It's so beautiful. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich, how pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song.